Revelation chapter 6. As we begin this morning, I just want to refresh us a little bit on what we had studied last week and and, and kind of where we were left. Uh, Just remember that Jesus has made his appearance uh, in that heavenly throne room that uh, first appeared back in chapter 5 and he appears as the lamb that was slain. And just remember this, he's not only a lamb that was slain, he was a lamb that was slain and he was resurrected from the dead, that he is living. And this is one of the most important things I should have brought to our attention last week and I didn't do that, that even though he was slain, he, is, he has life, he is living. And he's ascended uh, into heaven and he sits at r- the right hand of God the Father uh, where all power and authority in heaven and earth have been granted unto him and he is ruling on high over all of creation. Uh, and uh, as we considered last week, one of the things to note is that, that all of those, uh, those four seraphim and uh, uh, the 24 elders and the myriads and myriads of angels and all the creatures of the earth, that they were worshiping not only God the Father on the throne, but also God the Son on the throne, and the Holy Spirit who was also there uh, at the throne, as we have read uh, already before. So just this great sense of worship and praise that is going out to the one who deserves all of it. Chapter 6. Well, and, and another few things I want to say is this, is remember the book. John had seen a book in the hands of God, in the right hand of God the Father, and the Lamb had come and taken the book, and the Lamb was the only one who was found who was worthy to open those seven seals on that book and to reveal what the contents are. Uh, and this is where we've come this morning to the point that the Lamb has uh, taken the book and he begins to break uh, the seals and reveal what is contained now. Uh, the people have speculated a great deal, as you can imagine, as to what this book contains. There are some people who believe very vehemently that it's actually the Lamb's Book of Life, which is mentioned later on in the book of Revelation, in which all the names of the elect have been written since the very beginning of time, and it's been his possession uh, ever since that time, and now it's, it's, he's given it to the Son. Uh, there's some people who believe that it is just a summation of all the judgments that God uh, has made and, and will make uh, as he rules over the heavens and the earth uh, and the plan of redemption included in that possibly too. Uh, I think there really is a more practical way for you and I to look at it because you know, when we see scroll, we see book, then we begin to think about how does the Bible address it, how it has that particular item or that thing mentioned in scripture in lots of other places and certainly there would be some ground based upon that for these speculative kind of ideas that people might have what the content ideas of the contents but see what I would say to you is this is we need to let the the book or the scroll speak for itself in other words as the sun opens breaks the seals and opens the scroll what he's doing is he's revealing what has been contained. In other words, what we're about to study now 
is the most practical, logical understanding of what that scroll actually is. It's these particular judgments that we're going to be studying over the, today and next week that are coming as a result of all of this. Chapter 6, and I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder come, and I looked and, and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living, living creature saying, come, and another, a red horse uh, went out and to him who sat on it, uh, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come, or the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on, the, uh, on it uh, had the name Death, and Hades was following with him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with, store, with sword and with famine and with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And we're going to stop there. When I was nine years old, my brother Dwayne and I, uh, some of you are familiar with Ocala, and you maybe know of the Marion Theater that's downtown, just off of the square. It's where my brother and I wound up just about every Saturday afternoon when we were young kids and, and it was in those days when you could get into the movie for 25 cents and you know you can have a drink and a candy bar for another you know 10 cents or something like that uh, but we went almost every uh, every Saturday afternoon to the movies and I can remember one particular movie that we went to see and it starred uh, Glenn Ford and uh, uh, Lee J. Scott uh, Cobb and the title of it was The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Now, I can tell you this. I don't remember a whole lot about it. But what I, what I do remember about it is this. Is it gave me nightmares. It scared the bejeebies out of me. And this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. This is the section that is called the revealing or the revelation of the seven or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. As you can imagine, this is an area where people have speculated a lot about this. What does this represent? Who was that? That sort of thing. And I think there's good reason for us to, to have the idea that we can, we can gain some real and true and, and specific knowledge and understanding of things. But I do want to say to you this. The, the, these are some of the things that are not absolutely totally clear to us. In other words, there is, there is a close mystery about all of this. And we have to understand that, and we have to be comfortable with it being that way. God has revealed to us all that he wants us to know. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he always gives us the kind of detail that we think that we ought to have or that we need. 
Those four seraphim are involved in this. The first one comes forth and with a voice that sounds like thunder beckons the first horseman to come. Described as being on a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out Conquering and to conquer. This is probably the most controversial of these four things. Uh, The reason being this is there are people, there are people that fall on both ends of the spectrum. Some people believe that this, in fact, is a picture of Christ. Other people believe, on the other hand, that it is actually a picture of an antichrist. And there is good argument for both. So this is an area where scholars are much decided. Is, is who exactly is this first horseman of the apocalypse? Is it Jesus? Well, the argument for Jesus is this. is a good argument. Because what you'll find here is there's also a description of Jesus. And there's no doubt about that it is Jesus, the Lord, coming in, in Revelation chapter 9. And he's coming on a white horse. There's also this, if indeed, as we have kind of speculated or we've kind of put our anchor into this idea at the very beginning of the study, and that is that that the book of Revelation is basically seven different, or, or revelations of seven different visions, and each one of those covers basically the same period in history. And that period in history has to do with the period between the time of the first coming of Christ and his ascension back into heaven and the second coming of Christ, the things that are taking place in the world during those days. If that's true, if it it is really recorded history in a sense between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, then it makes logical sense that the Lord would be the first to appear. It's a a, a situation that I'm not exactly settled on myself, that I'll kind of lean one way for a while, and then I'll read some other stuff, and I'll lean the other way for a while. So you need to understand it's not something that I'm really settled on, but there really is good arguments for both. You know, why would it possibly be an antichrist? And we know this. Just think about the Olivet Discourse. Jesus tells us a lot of things in the Olivet Discourse. And people think that Jesus gives all kinds of signs that are going to take place immediately before he comes. And that's really not what the gist of the Olivet Discourse is. Because he talks about wars and he talks about earthquakes and he talks about famines and all these other kinds of things. And what he says there is this, is these are not signs of my coming. These are only they're, they're pangs that are taking place that are necessary, but the time is not yet. I mean, every time there's some natural catastrophe or there's a major war and, and such as this, people start saying that's the sign of the coming of the sun. It is not. Jesus says it's not. Those are things. I'm sorry for. 
Those are things that are part of the world. They have been part of the world from the very beginning of time. They're still part of the world today. And they will be part of the world until the Lord comes back. So I don't know where you happen to be on in regard to this. Like I said, there are very good arguments for this being Jesus. There are also very good arguments for it not being Jesus. Very often this first horseman is called uh, the horseman of conquest, which you can see. He's described as going out and conquering, and then conquering more. Good argument for it being Christ was this, as he came into the world to conquer. He came into the world to conquer sin. He came into the world to conquer death. And he's done that for you and for me. But we know that conquest has been a big part of the picture of the world ever since the very beginning. And conquest basically is people taking for themselves stuff that belonged to other people. Very often by force, more often than not, taking it by force, by violence, by war. You just think about all the kingdoms, the empires that that had such a big part of the Old Testament. The empire of the Assyrians, the empire of the Babylonians, the, the, the empire of Israel, the empire of Egypt. These kinds of things have gone and come. What about the British Empire? Just a couple of hundred years ago. Remember there was a time when, the, when they said the sun never set on the, sat on, set on the English flag. Because the British Empire was so extensive. Virtually all this conquest has been done by military force, taking from other people. And we all know the roots of the United States, that there were Native American Indians living here before people began to migrate here from Europe. Conquest is part of the picture. It has been for a very long time. That we know that God is the ultimate conqueror. And that in the end, his conquest will be made complete. Right? The second seraphim came forth. He beckons the second horseman. Described in verse 4, and another, a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him, often called the horseman of war. Red, more than likely, is symbolic for blood. Someone has said at one time that the history of mankind is the history of war. If you ever took American history in in school or took world history in school, you'll know that the wars basically are the points in the historical scales, the chronology that kind of hold everything else together. That war has been characterized by human history 
And there probably has never been a time in human history where there was not war going on somewhere. As we sit here today, there are people in this world that are warring against one another. We know that. Shouldn't surprise us. Jesus says in the interlude between my my going and my coming again, war is going to continue to be a characteristic that is prominent in the world. It's one of the most obvious consequences of the sinful nature of mankind. I mean, how many people have been killed, maimed, how, how much property has been destroyed, etc., etc., in the name of war? Sometimes justifiably so, a great deal of the time not justifiable at all. Again, it's a measure of the sinfulness of human nature. If we begin to doubt that people really are that bad, the only thing we have to do is pick up a history book and begin to read it. There is evilness. There is wickedness in people. And war is a picture of that. The church has been at war. The church is at war. Now, it's not the same kind of war. It's not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. There has never been a church of Jesus Christ that has not been planted in the midst of the enemy's camp. Not one. You think about the seven churches that we've already studied. Every one of those planted right in the middle of the enemy's camp. And we talked about the trials and tribulations those seven churches were going through. Unrelenting persecution and etc. Simply for being Christian. Simply for refusing to worship idols and to worship Caesar. And some of them being martyred for their faith. Probably far more than are specifically mentioned in the scriptures. Always in the enemy camp. When we first came here to Dunellen, Wilma Massey, Lloyd's mom, was still living, and I loved Wilma. She was one of those older people who came to faith later on in her life, I think. Came to know Jesus very well in the last days, and she developed cancer, and she wasn't with us but more than maybe a year. And she Hers was the very first funeral I ever did. Uh, But someone asked Wilma Massey one day why Dunellen needed another church. In other words, why don't we just go to one of the churches that is here already? Why would we come here to a place that already has churches and start another church? And she came up with the best answer that I think probably anyone ever would, and that is this, is how could you have too many churches To worship God. But I want you to understand something. That we came here. We came into the enemy's camp. 
Not that there weren't believers here already. There was some believer here, here already. But there are people who are believing today because Springs Presbyterian Church was started 25 years ago next February. When I first came here, I was determined to be actively involved in the ministerial association. And partly because the church we'd come from, the pastor almost seemed to be totally anti every other church. And I was in a leader position, and that was basically the way I, it seemed to be. Now, that's changed a lot since then. But in those days, it was almost like we looked upon ourselves as being the church, the only church. And there was not a lot of community and un, united, uh, being united with other believers but I got involved in the ministerial association. The guy who's, who was a, the, the, the pastor of First Baptist Church in those days, his name was Dwayne Kitchen. I would imagine no one here probably even remembers that name because he was only here for just a few months when I first came. The amazing thing is this, is Dwayne loved me from the very beginning. And, and it surprised me because you would think that people would almost feel threatened there's another church coming in, there's only so many people here, so on and so on and so on, and that's very often the way that the pastors think some of the time. But he was delighted to have me here because he knew I was coming from the PCA and he knew that PCA was strongly evangelical, that we really believe in the gospel. Because at that point, he felt like he was an island here all by himself. That all the other churches around practice nothing at all but what's called the social gospel. It's what they preached, it's what they taught, it's what they practiced. The social gospel, my friends, is, is a lie from the pit of hell and it will save no one. The only thing it is is just another work salvation and that is, is basically what it says is this, is Jesus was just a good guy that God sent into the world and so how do, we, how do we get right with God? How do we get into heaven? Well, we be like Jesus. We do the things that Jesus did. We say the things that Jesus said. In other words, we earn our own way by mimicking his behavior. That is not the gospel. That will save no one. What we need is a Savior. What we must have is a Savior who has done it for us without whom none of us would be saved. Fortunately, as the years went by, most of those people left in those ministries and things got a lot better. But what I'm telling you, there was a sense of darkness in this place when we first came here. Churches are always started in the enemy's camp. They need to be. Those are the places that need churches. And there will be war. Because Satan and his henchmen do not want new churches. 
They don't want Bible-believing and practicing churches. And they will do everything they can to stop it. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, uh, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The seal number three is often called uh, the seal of famine or pestilence and or pestilence. Think about the Bible. You think about famine. Famine is something that has been characterized all through the history As a matter of fact, it is actually one of the cursings that God promised that he would bring upon Israel if indeed they were not faithful to him. And lo and behold, as you consider the history revealed in the Old Testament, there's famine after famine after famine after famine after famine. And very often it's in, in, in Israel. Think about the days of Joseph, what was going on. There was famine. Where? It was famine in the land of Canaan, which would become Israel. You think about in the days of Ahab and Elijah. Remember, Elijah prayed to God that it would rain for three years. Where? In Israel. Because Israel had become up so apostate. So for three years, there's no rain. So there was famine in the land of Israel. Now, most of us have never experienced famine in our life. I mean, real famine. Maybe on occasion we get really hungry. Most of the time when you and I get hungry, it's not because we don't have food available to us. It's for other reasons. Uh, we live in a, in a, in a land where really it, you know, there's no reason why anyone would go hungry because there's food available all over the place, even for nothing. But think about it. Think about the condition of Florida, what Florida would be like if it didn't rain here for three years. What do you think that would do to the citrus industry? What do you think it would do to all the farming that takes place down in the homestead area and et cetera? It would be non-existent. A denarius was basically the wage that a, a worker, the average worker would earn for a day. So think about it. How well would you do if your daily wage, every bit of it, went to buying one quart of wheat? That's it. Nothing else. See, when famine comes, it brings all kinds of things. It's not just hunger. There's all kinds of diseases that pop up as a result of that, that hunger, that starvation that's going on. It affects everybody. Think about parents. Can you imagine being a parent watching your child starving to death? 
By the way, there are people living in the world right now as we're speaking who are doing that very thing. It's not an issue today in the world. It's not a question of whether there's enough food. There's plenty of food in the world today to feed absolutely everybody easily. The problem is this. It's not evenly distributed. Some people have way more than other people do. Some people have little to nothing. Some people have way more than they need. Way more than they need. Lori and I saw some of this firsthand when we went to Uganda. It's the first time we'd ever been to a third world country where you know, we, we, we grew up looking at Natural Geographic and seeing pictures of children walking around with swollen bellies because of parasites and because of starvation and etc. It's one, it's one thing to see things, see pictures, guys, but it's a totally different thing to see the reality of it, that people are really living, living it. It's happening. It's happening right now as we speak. The U.S. has been very instrumental in giving a lot to other countries. We spend a lot of money every year feeding people in other countries. I don't know if you realize that or not, but we do that. There's a lot of humanitarian aid that goes all around the world for the United States far more than you've ever seen from any other nation ever by a long shot. So don't let people tell you that that America is just this evil, terrible, imperialistic nation who doesn't care anything about anybody else. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it, this fourth creature came and, and called him forth. And sat on it, had the name of death, and Hades was, was following with him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Ashen horse. The Greek actually means yellowish green. Uh, what I would say to you is this. It's the picture of a dead, it's the color of a dead body. It's been dead for a while. A sickening, pale, icky color. We all know what death is. Death entered into the picture when the first family was on the earth. And it's been a part of the picture ever since. And war has a lot to do with it. Disease has a lot to do with it. Famine has a lot to do with it. Starvation has to do with it. All kinds of diseases, all kinds of parasites. I can remember when Ken and Kathy Mori first went down to Honduras. To pay, and they paid the way for Michael and Cindy to go later. Uh, but talking with one, them one day, you know, when we were back in the States, we used to worm our pets. Now we worm ourselves. Isn't it nice to live in a place where we don't have to deal with parasites for the most part? I mean, we can pick up ticks and this, that, and the other, but any parasite that we get, we have 
some way of getting rid of it pretty easily, that sort of thing. But there are places, guys and gals, that people live with all disinfested with all kinds of parasites. And Uganda is one of those. One of the things they always do in the medical clinics is they, they worm all the kids. They give them medication to, to clear out their digestive system of all the parasites that are there. They do things to provide uh, uh, prevention of malaria, give them uh, mosquito netting and things like that. One of the things that struck me when I first went there was this, is you don't see, there's a distinct difference between Christians in Uganda and people who are not Christians. Because there is a sense of hope, there's a sense of delight, there's a sense of joy that you find with Christians that you just don't see in just about anybody else at all. One of the things that bothered me was this, is you you never saw the the, the Ugandan men showing affection, except for the Christian Ugandan men, showing affection to their children. In other words, a typical Ugandan picture never would be something like daddy coming home from work and all the kids running to hug and kiss daddy because they're so happy and glad that he's home. Men purposely put a distance between themselves and their children. And it took me a while to to get some understanding of why. And the reason is this, is because they know there's a very good chance that child is not going to be with them a year later. Infant mortality in Uganda is unbelievably high. Children die all the time. We're confronted with death. You know, it's amazing how we've seen the average lifespan in the United States change dramatically just within the last 100-plus years. Do you understand that people are living almost twice as long on the average today as they were 120 years ago? If we were having church service back in 1890, the vast majority of people in this room would have been dead a long time ago. I can remember my grandparents. I had one grandmother that lived to be 82, but all three of my other grandparents were dead before they were my age. And that was pretty normal. It wasn't unusual. They died in their, their 60s. I mean, God has blessed us today in ways that, that, that no people have ever been blessed in all of history. He's given us a lot more life, a lot longer life. And the way that we need to look upon it is this. as more opportunity. He's given us more long opportunity, longer opportunity to be lights in the darkness, to be the servants of Christ, to share the gospel, not only in word but in deed, with other people. We know this. We know that Jesus 
has overcome death. The, the, the death no longer has a sting for you and for me. You know that, right? I hope no one here is really deadly afraid of dying. You shouldn't be if you know Jesus. There's no reason for you to be afraid of dying. In a sense, dying is, is almost a great release to leave this place of conquest, this place of war, this place of famine, this place of pestilence, uh, and so on. To never have to deal with those things again. But people die. We all know people that have died. We have all had people that are very dear to us who have died. And we know this. That unless Jesus comes back first, everyone in this room will eventually die. We will return to dust as God said that we would. There are a lot of people who fear death. There are a lot of people, it seems, will do just about anything they can to avoid it. Just remember, there's a second death. Second death is real death. Being cast in the lake of fire with Satan and all the demons and all of those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is real death. That's eternal. Hades was the Greek god of the underworld. Eventually became, you know, the underworld became known as Hades, or what we would call hell. You know, where is hell located? Is it down in the center of the earth, as that word is? That could be, but I don't think so. Because when you're talking about hell, you're talking about that spiritual realm, just like we've been talking about all along since we got into chapter 5 of Revelation, this entirely, uh, this realm that is, is not perceptible to us by any of our sensory perception. It's, it's still, it's here, it exists, it's just as real as the one that we're in, but we just don't have any knowledge and understanding of it. Now, I would say that's probably where hell is in, that, in, in, in a realm like that. It's set apart by itself. We, we don't see it. We don't hear it. We don't feel it. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. Now, you may not realize this, but uh, 26 million people died from bubonic plague in Europe. In the 14th century, I think it was the 14th century. That's a bunch of people. But at the same time, that was not anywhere near a fourth of the people living in the world at that time. 40 million people died in World War II. Still, 
nothing close to a quarter of the earth's population at that time. This opens the door for us to understand something. And that is this. There's a good possibility, and I would say there's a real good possibility, that there is some event that is coming, still future, that will precede the second coming of Christ. That will be a destructive force upon humanity like nothing humanity has ever seen. Maybe it was also the culmination of conquest and war and all these other things. Something that will take place before Christ comes again. Before God's perfect and complete judgment. Could be right around the corner. Billy Graham wrote a book years ago, and I read it, and I really don't remember a whole lot about it, but I remember the title of it Approaching Hoofbeats. It had to do with, guess what? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Every time there's an earthquake, every time there's a war, people start talking about it's the sign of the times and Jesus is, is at the door and he's coming back. And, and I tell people this all the time and it seems like it never sinks in and that is this. You need to understand that there were people, there have been people living in every generation since Christ ascended back into heaven who believed with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength that the Antichrist was among them, that Jesus was coming in their day. They've all been wrong. Every one of them. But you know what? Sometime, eventually, they're going to be right. Because we don't know when it is. Jesus has purposely kept it from us. He doesn't want us to know when it is. He doesn't give us signs and symbols of exactly when it's going to happen. The words of Jesus are this, that I will come like a thief in the night. I will come when you least expect me to come. See, this is one of the reasons we're doing Revelation, because there's people who spend all their time in Revelation. They're trying to figure out this, and they're trying to figure like this, and they're trying to speculate when Jesus is coming, rather than be faithful to doing the calling that he's called us to do all along. And that is to live for him. And tell others about him. To be about his business. It'd be nice if he just appeared. Right now would be fine with me. But. How likely is that? 
not near as likely as a lot of people seem to think. It could be 10 million years before Jesus comes again. Or it could be 10 seconds. The most important thing is this, is are you ready? Are we ready? I hope so.